Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHer Con is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. There's less institutional players here, whereas in my earlier job, it was all institutional. But what does translate over is the fact that you need to be in-depth, you need to be granular, and you need to be very sophisticated in the way that you look at things. As a loyal Best Ever listener, you know that it's important that we as entrepreneurs focus on managing our time effectively, which is why we're always looking for ways to automate the basic duties of our business so that we can focus more time on our money-making activities. That's why I want to introduce you to Rentler.com. At Rentler, landlords and property managers can perform all their duties in one place. Rentler offers tools that allow you to automate tasks like listing a unit for rent, finding and screening tenants, collecting rent, and managing the maintenance requests. And even better, these tools are offered at zero cost to you. Go to tryrentler.com forward slash best ever. That's T-R-Y-R-E-N-T-L-E-R.com forward slash best ever to get started today. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of the fluffy stuff with us today. Omar Khan, how you doing, Omar? Hey, Joe. Great honor to be here. Well, I'm glad you are on the show and a little bit about Omar. He is a manager at Boardwalk Wealth. He's got 10 years of investing experience across real estate and commodities. He is based in Dallas, Texas, and you can learn more about his company at BoardWalkWealth.com. That's also a link in the show notes page. That being said, Omar, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Well, you've done a great job, so I'm just going to add on some stuff. You're a big inspiration for me, so we run syndications. I've done about $3.7 billion of capital financing and M&A transactions, and I'm Canadian. I moved down to the U.S. three years ago, so I advise a lot of high net worth individuals and entrepreneurs on real estate portfolio allocations. And apart from that, my partner, Reed Gusens, and I are doing a software that is just specifically catered for syndications and multifamily, mobile home parks, and self-storage facilities. That's basically going to be super nuts. You're going to get institutional quality underwriting. Cool. So I can't ignore anything with a B billion. So 3.7 billion. Will you elaborate on that just so I can understand the context? Well, these are debt and equity transactions as well as M&A transactions, both in real estate and commodities. So oil and gas primarily. Oil and gas primarily. And what is your role in those transactions? I was the lead analyst and manager running those transactions. So one was a debt refinance. We did that. That took into account a couple of things. But the oil crisis... Three years ago, we had to basically selectively go out to the market, raise money through our investment bankers, but there was a lot of strategic reasons. So I was leading that charge. 
On the equity side, similar to that, we raised equity as well. And on the M&A transaction side, because I worked for a bigger company, selectively, we would choose to acquire both refining assets, uh, upstream assets and downstream assets in oil and gas. And then on the real estate side, I raised capital for about $80 million worth of deals. Got it. So real estate side, raised capital, $80 million. Where did that $80 million come from? Well, where did that come from? That came from a lot of people. (laughs) (laughs) Primarily lots of people, high net worth individuals and entrepreneurs. Was that for your company or was that for the company where you were a W2 employee? No, that was for other people's projects. I was a capital raiser. Got it. So for example, how would that be structured? We elaborate on that? Well, typically how it'd be structured is in the same in the LLC and the LLP scenarios that you guys have in your own deals. A lot of my Canadian investors are primarily Canadians and international people because I'm from Canada, so we've got a lot of that. So when I was coming to the U.S. three years ago, that's kind of how I got started. I didn't have a good enough network in the U.S., but slowly that's developing, and that's how we do the work. So you personally have raised $80 million? I have personally participated in $80 million worth of transactions. I've raised about $4 million. Oh, got it, got it, got it. Sorry, I misunderstood. I thought you said you've raised $80 million. Okay, so you've participated in $80 million. You have raised $4 million. Got it. Okay, cool. So you have raised $4 million and you said you were a lead analyst on a bunch of deals. That was as a W-2 employee, is that correct? Okay. What did you learn from that that you are applying to your real estate underwriting for your own stuff? Well, what I learned from that is that the amount of level of granularity, the level of detail, and the level of sophistication one needs when they're running basically big transactions is a step above just the usual sort of, you know, I'll kind of do an analysis at the back of the envelope because there's lots of moving parts. And a lot of these moving parts, a lot of balls are up in the air. You don't really know how people are going to react, how the situation is going to develop. So what you basically need to do is have a plan A, B, and C before you even do something. And you have to be confident enough in your own plans, but you have to be willing enough to know that if things don't work out, you can basically switch gears pretty quickly. Will you elaborate on that just to just crystallize in my mind a little bit what that means? So what that means is that when the oil prices went down three and a half, four years ago, what was happening is that a company that I was working with was a $20 billion company. In the Canadian space, it was number three or four, if you think about it, in terms of their total production capacity. So there was, apart from the financial aspect of, hey, we can go out and raise money and all of that kind of stuff. The bigger thing that we had to basically figure out was, number one, what was our opinion? Was it just a temporary downside in prices? Was it just prices just going to come back up? Or was this a secular decline in commodity prices? And if it was a secular decline in commodity prices, because our operations are long-term in nature and we need long-term financing. So what we had to do was A, secure more long-term financing so we can avoid as the prices are going down, nobody's going to lend to us, so we should quickly go to the market. But other than that, what we also have to start doing is thinking that if we're first out of the gate, we have a first mover advantage. So if I go out and as a company, we can go out and raise a billion dollars. That just means that when our competitors go out into the market, not enough people will buy their stuff because there's only a finite amount of capital to be allocated to a certain space at a given moment in time. So there's financial reasons, but there's also a lot of strategic and qualitative reasons one has to look out for when engaging in these size of transactions. Okay. Definitely makes sense. So when you now apply that to underwriting real estate for your own deals, how is that applicable to the latter? 
Well, how that's applicable to the latter number one is that right now we're seeing that we're not as big as you, obviously. So we're not the first people that the brokers call. So for some of our brokers, what we're also seeing in the markets that we're at, Dallas, Houston, San Antonio, and we're looking at Atlanta. What's happening is that a lot of prices are being paid, which we frankly does not make sense to us for a given model. So what do we have to do? We have to look at two or three things. First, number one, we have to be patient for the right deal. Number two, what we have to maintain discipline. And number three, what we have to do is ensure that we're continuously in touch with brokers so the relationship is maintained while we are doing all the stuff at our back end. And a lot of this stuff, for instance, right now is even just optimizing our processes, automating a lot of stuff within our company to make sure that when we do get the right deal, in the meantime, we're not wasting any time. We are still moving in the right direction, but we're waiting for the right deal to come through the door. In terms of deals, what have you personally purchased? Personally, so Houston deal is done. That was about 243 units. And now we're actually looking for another deal, either in Houston or San Antonio. Got it. So you were on the GP side of a 243 unit in Houston? Yeah, my partner was actually. That's how we're partnering up. So you and your partner on the GP side of 243 unit? Yep. Cool. Congratulations on that closing. So what was your role in that? Two roles. My partner was basically just putting up his net worth and I was providing a lot of the financials, underwriting a lot of that kind of stuff behind it, just to make sure that when he was investing his money, he knew where it was going. It was a good enough deal for him and it fit the perimeters that we wanted. And when you do that analysis, what are some tactical things you can tell us you did that listeners can then apply to their underwriting? More than the underwriting, what we started off was a sub-market analysis by looking at the job growth, the employment growth, the demographics, all of that stuff. And then when we took it to the underwriting aspect of the game, what we wanted to basically figure out was not just say a precise number. So let's say X point XX IRR, right? What we wanted to figure out was what was the chances of us losing our money or rather how bad would things have to go for us to lose our capital? And how can we manage that situation? So once we ran a lot of stress tests, we did a lot of sensitivity analyses, when we figured that sort of out and we were okay with the risk, that's when we decided to go ahead. So specifically, what metrics do you look for when you're looking at how bad would it have to be? Cash flow metrics primarily. I'm basically looking at debt service coverage ratios. I'm looking at liquidity to see, for instance, can we pay out the investors at the time that we've told them we were going to pay it out? And how much more margin of safety do I have? So as an example, if I have to pay out $100,000 this quarter and I only have, say, $105,000, that's not enough margin of safety for me because things can go south. So looking at those sorts of deal and then realizing, well, is it comfortable enough? Are we okay with it? And then working with our property managers and our other partners to make sure we're all on the same page and we're not all looking and thinking about things differently. What is the baseline cash flow metric that you look for? Baseline cash flow metric, I'm looking at it primarily from the perspective of a lender and I'm basically seeing debt service coverage ratios. And but if I keep paying the debt and everything else is going, at least the lights are on. And what number do you look for there? at least at the minimum 1.35, 1.4 in that range. And then in terms of liquidity, what do you look for? I need at least 10 to 15, ideally 20% margin of safety building and on a stabilized asset. Unstabilized, 10 to 15%. 10 to 15% of what? 10 to 15% of whatever outflows of cash I'm going to have. Okay. When you apply the lessons you learned from the $3.7 billion of the transactions where you were the lead analyst on those deals. And then you're now applying it to real estate transactions. 
what doesn't transfer over from your previous experience? Well, first of all, I think there are a lot of cross-transferable skills. What doesn't maybe transfer over is the fact that at least in the space that we are in, the BC time, there's less institutional players there, whereas in my earlier job, it was all institutional. But what does translate over is the fact that you need to be in-depth, you need to be granular, and you need to be very sophisticated in the way that you look at things. As far as being very sophisticated in how you look at things, what are some tips you can give the best ever listeners for how to do that on their deals? So as an example, for instance, a lot of deals that we look at when people are under other people's deals that we're looking at when they're underwriting, they'll only provide you, say, an annual level of detail. And I understand that, that you've got to put it in your investment summary. But as soon as you start asking people about, say, can you provide me the monthly details? Most, a lot of people don't have it. I'm sure smart folks like you have it, but a lot of folks, they don't have it because their models are very simple. They've just simply copied over somebody's model. Or for instance, when people say in some markets, they're going to implement rubs as an example. And the first day we're going to come in and currently the property is at 40%, but we want to take it up to 70%. So one of the things we look at is that people immediately start assuming that from month one, rubs is going to be 70 or 75%. Mm. Whereas what actually happens in real life is that there is a ramp up, right? So slowly, slowly, slowly you'll go. And then on top of that, what we also see is that a lot of times people are basically massaging the numbers, basically how aggressive they are in their rent growth, how much they curtail or manage their expensive. Basically, they're trying to massage their numbers to hit some sort of a mythical sort of cash on cash target, a preferred return target and an IRR target. So if you go back, if you look at the monthly results, you kind of see how aggressive or rather non-aggressive they are. What's something if we're looking at financials and we're looking to see if they are massaging the numbers to hit a certain metric? What's something we can specifically look for to determine that? Two things right off the top you can specifically look at is how aggressive they are when their rent grows. Actually, three things. How specific they are, how aggressive they are with their rent growth, how aggressive they are with their rehab projects, if it's applicable, and then on the exit, what kind of exit cap rate are they using? I prefer 50 to 200 basis points higher on a typical three to five year per year, but everybody has a different assumption. Mm-hmm. 50 to 200 basis points higher. That's a decent size range of what the exit is. How do you determine if it should be 50 versus 200? That depends on the strengths of the market. So as an example, if you bought in the last three years in Dallas, as an example, Richardson, if you bought in Richardson or Garland, you can get away with 50 to 100 basis points writing because the market is very strong with good demographics and diversity of economy and all of that stuff. But let's assume you're buying in a more of a cyclical sort of market, something like say, maybe Houston's a bigger example, maybe in El Paso, that's very oil and gas driven. There, you might want to stretch your basically exit cap, uh, more expansion of your exit cap out to 150 to 200 basis points to account for all the risk. As far as you mentioned about how aggressive with rehab projects they are, will you elaborate on that? What I'm seeing primarily is that a lot of folks on their first or second deal, what they're doing is, let's assume they put 150 unit asset under mem contract, and they say, we're going to renovate 100 of those units, and we're going to renovate that in the first, say, six months or 12 months or 13 months. First of all, I feel, yeah, you could potentially do it, but there's a lot of moving pieces, number one. Number two, if the rest of your underwriting is predicated on the fact that you're very aggressive, so in 12 months, you're going to upgrade 120 of these units, and then you're going to start getting all these rent premiums, and you don't build a margin of safety. So as an example, if you assume you're going to renovate all these apartments in a 12-month period, maybe you should underwrite to a 24-month period Give yourself some of that room. And look, in reality, if you get more money coming in earlier, nobody's going to complain. And then as far as the rent gross, 
how do we determine if they're being aggressive or not there? In most big MSAs, roughly people assume anywhere between 3 to 6%. I would ideally like to look at anywhere between 2 to 4% just to be safe. But a lot of times what I'm looking at, just to fit the numbers, people are going above the 5 6%. And what they're primarily doing is looking at the last two or three years worth of high rent growth in big MSAs and assuming that's going to continue forever. Whereas that's not really the case. The last two, three, four, five years are the exception to the rule, not the rule. And that's on stabilization, right? That's on stabilization, yeah. And what about the renovation period where they're assuming rent growth? What should we look at there? Well, there, I would actually err on the side of caution, number one, because that's also dependent on your rent roll and how not quickly some of your units are coming offline. But I think the bigger thing to focus there would be is how aggressive you are on your rehab plan. If you're a newbie or you don't have the experience, like for instance, you guys do. Again, like I said, or on the side of caution, if you think your property manager thinks you guys can do it in 12 months, I would underwrite a lower, say, rent growth on, say, a 24-month period just to give yourself room to breathe. Great tips. Very applicable and best ever listeners can certainly just take this and go help assess different opportunities, both from a passive investor standpoint, but then also from an active investor standpoint, putting these deals together. What's been a challenging project that you've been a part of? Challenging project that I've been a part of this was this Houston deal, where the challenge was more around understanding the market demographics. Number one, we did our research, we were getting something 15 results, but the bigger deal was on the communication frequency that we wanted and the property manager didn't want. Because we were partnering up with some other people, some of these were really experienced people, we wanted to be on a more of a frequent communication in the first 12 months, so more like say every two weeks or every week, whereas the property management team wanted more at the three or four week mark. So we basically had to sit down and come to an agreement and we did agree on the two week period, but that was more around the asset management, the property management, as opposed to the asset in and of itself. Based on your experience, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? Patience is a virtue. How does that play itself out in your approach? Well, how that plays out in our approach is that we have an investment criteria. And look, from time to time, as the market changes, we might have to modify it. But the bigger deal is holding on to your horses and not chasing after every deal that comes across our desk because we know the market is hot. So the deals are only as good as what the market is. So if we hold our horses, we stick to our criteria and we don't try to over-engineer or try to put a round peg through a square hole hopefully we'll be coming out pretty in the long term. What is your investment criteria that you mentioned? 15 to 8% IRR, 8, 8% ideally preferred returns, and around 8 to 9% cash on cash. And that 15 to 18% IRR, is that project level or is that to limited partners? That's to limited partners and net of fees. Got it. So the project level would be low 20s at minimum? At the okay. minimum. The spread has to be. That's a good point you raised out. For us, between the project and the LPs, the spread has to be at least five, 500 basis points or 5% at the minimum. We're going to do a lightning round. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Yep. All right, let's do it. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. You looking for a one-stop landlording software that helps you create listings, find and screen tenants, and accept rental payments while managing maintenance requests? Oh, by the way, it's zero cost to you. Go to tryrentler.com forward slash best ever. That's T-R-Y-R-E-N-T-L-E-R.com forward slash best ever. See a rundown or abandoned house? Well, snap a picture with the Deal Machine app to instantly find the owner and get in touch via direct mail, email, and phone in just 10 seconds. Search Deal Machine 
in your app store or visit dealmachineapp.com. All right, best ever book you've read. This is basically Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman and Abu Stavarsky. They're basically behavior economists. And they basically talk about how people actually react in situations as opposed to how they should theoretically react. Oh, I would just eat that up. I'm definitely going to read that one. Thanks for sharing. What's the best ever deal you've done that we haven't discussed? I think the best ever deal, I wouldn't call it a deal, but the best ever agreement I came up to was convincing my wife to marry me. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. I'm certainly not going to have any follow-up questions there or ask you why. What about the mistake you've made on a transaction? The mistake I made on a transaction is that, for instance, I wasn't very patient and in the hurry to do a deal and to just get that notch under my belt, I overlooked a few big things around due diligence. Primarily, basically, I didn't do my whole operational due diligence. I did a lot of the financial due diligence and I thought that was okay. And that I learned the hard way not to do in the future. What specifically from an operational standpoint got overlooked? What got overlooked was the fact that basically there was some foundation issues and there were some septic tank issues that me and my partner should have looked at, but I take the blame myself. Similar property, but a different one that you come across tomorrow. Who do you bring on to help assess those things? That's a good question. I'd have to reach out into my network to see who's good at all these managing the foundation and septic tank issues, because that's not something we do or wanted to do. But uh, we overlooked that little aspect and got ourselves a deal where we shouldn't actually be operating that side of the passive. So I'd have to look into my network and ask a couple of people. But I primarily want to ask Reed. He's done a couple of deals and he's an engineer, so I could leverage him. Best ever way you like to give back? We actually run and contribute to a few charities. One in specific is in San Antonio. I'm forgetting the name of it, but I read about it in the newspaper. A really big property developer, his daughter was special needs, but they couldn't really find any amusement park that catered to special needs children. So the guy basically, as his legacy, he's built out a special needs amusement park for kids and people from all over the world bring their kids there. It's, it's a great place. Oh, it's beautiful. That's in San Antonio? Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm forgetting the name. It's Happy Something. I should know this. That's all right. I think that's enough for a Google search and it'll be a pretty easy find. Best ever way the best of listeners can get in touch with you? They can email me at umar, O-M-A-R, at boardwalkwealth.com or they can go to our website, www.boardwalkwealth.com. Omar, thank you so much. You gave some helpful tips on underwriting, especially for passive investors, but also active investors, as I mentioned earlier. The things to look at to that are more sophisticated when we're assessing an opportunity. One is making sure that the monthly details and the underwriting is there. Two is not just annual. Two is making sure that the rubs are done gradually. There's a ramp up time versus you bought it and congratulations. Now everyone's on the rub program starting day one. Three is looking at the numbers in detail and you gave three additional things there. One is how aggressive are they with rent growth on a stabilized property? You like to see two to 4% rent growth versus three to six. The second thing is how aggressive are they with the rehab projects? And third, What does the cap rate look like? Making sure that it's at least 50 to up to 200 basis points higher than what the going in cap rate is so that the market is projecting to be worse when you sell and not the same or better. So thanks so much for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much. It's a great honor. Have a good one. See a rundown or abandoned house? Well, snap a picture with the Deal Machine app to instantly find the owner 
and get in touch via direct mail, email, and phone in just 10 seconds. Search Deal Machine in your app store or visit dealmachineapp.com.